0: We come back to Hebrews chapter ten, and I mentioned uh, last Lord's Day that uh, we were leaving, if you will, a a long argument we'd been in, a long theological argument in which the author of Hebrews has presented his argument for why you can't return to the old when you've received the new, why you can't return to the type when you've received the antitype, right? When you've received the fullness. There's no longer a need for the shadow. You don't go back to it. And he's made this argument and uh, done it at length to argue why Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pictures and promised. Why we have Christ and Him alone and in Him alone can we have hope and life. And so he's made his argument and I mentioned that uh, that that was really the end of that. It was a summation of that argument that uh, we looked at last week. And in fact now he enters a new section of the text one in which he will argue for how we're to live out this faith that he's described, how we're to live out what we are called to, what is the proper and fitting way to live faithfully, recognizing what we've been told. As we mentioned, as he transitioned into this or ended the section last week, he recapped many of those things in the first four verses of the chapter. You can see them there for yourself again, stuff he's been arguing for many, many chapters and then he added another proof to that, an additional proof. He said, turn to Psalm 40 and look at Psalm 40. For does it say that offering and sacrifice were not what God wanted, but a body prepared for me? And he says, David wrote that, but it isn't really the words of David. David was speaking prophetically the words of Christ. For Christ entered the world, God miraculously providing a body for him, and that this body was the offering, the true offering. And through that offering, then, sin is atone for, this perfect sacrifice, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. Now, as we looked at that last Sunday, we were bringing to a close that theological argument and bringing us, if you will, to a practical argument for how we're to live that out, as we said. This is a dynamic always in Scripture, isn't it, between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. They're not meant to be separated. They're meant to go together. They are meant to be married together, as it were. And we'll see that again today. So as we think about it, we want to come to this section that John Brown, the great John Brown, just called practice. How do we live out what we've learned theologically? And so I want to read this text one more time, so we'll then get into it. So beginning in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Amen. This is an important text. As we look at it today, I want us to look at just two points. First of all, our glorious standing, and second of all, our fitting response. Beginning with this idea of our glorious standing, Uh, We mentioned that we're leaving the theological, and there's still going to be theology, right? But we're leaving the largely theological argument for now the practical argument. But that doesn't mean we're not going to have some theology, right? That's the point I'm trying to get at. We recognize this is often how Scripture does it. If you think about the Apostle Paul's letter, it's his usual practice to do what? Open a letter with about half the letter being theological, and then the second half of the letter being the practical outworkings of those things. You see that with Ephesians, Romans, so many of his letters work just this way. In fact, as we've gone through those letters, we've seen that. We've made point to note that. It's important because we must keep those things together, right? Theology and practice must be married. They must not be separated. It's important to realize this because theology without practice leads to pride. Maybe you've seen people like this. They can quote the scriptures. They don't live the scriptures. They can quote the scriptures without love or compassion, without any of the fruit of the Spirit that necessarily should come from a transformed life born of the Spirit of God. We were talking in Sunday school, an important scripture that we're reminded of from Romans that says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Right? It tells us as God transforms our heart, He does it through this miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, but that same Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. There is a transformed life that is a part of that. And we realize that. That is the very thing that, that Paul says in Second Corinthians. We are being transformed. Transformed. We are in an instant justified, but God is sanctifying us to His glory through this ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we want to recognize that we see this sometimes. People who see the Word of God, not as God would use it to transform them or inform them, but as they can use it as a bat to beat down others. right? There is a reason that we use the Word in church discipline or whatever it may be. It's important to recognize that, but we also realize it applies to us, right? As I read the Word, I don't read it to you. I work all week reading it to me, right? Thinking about the implications for all of us, for myself included, that is what it does. So you can't separate theology from practice, but practice that isn't rooted in theology is also quick to go errant. Well, for the very reason that's implied there. It's not tied to the Word, right? It's not tied to the revelation of God. Therefore, we are simply trying to apply out what we think is good, what we want to do, what we think is right by our perhaps fallen nature, our wicked heart. And so again, Uh, The Bible tells us over and over again we must have both. We must have the theology of revelation in the scriptures and we must live it out as God calls us to do. So this is important. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right thought and right living go together. They uh, travel well together and they do not travel well separated. The word plainly testifies that they belong together. So we shouldn't be surprised. We come to these letters, we've seen a lot of theology, and then the author says, now let's talk about how to implement this in a life that honors God, in a life that is fitting for those who are saved. Now, we see immediately that that's what's happening here because verse 19 begins with what? Therefore. In other words, based on all that he's been saying, now here's what you need to know. It's based on what he's already been saying. Now, I do think here he's referring back that therefore to the summary But the summary is simply referring back to all that he's been writing for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. As we said, some people would say all the way back to 1-1. Some people would say maybe chapter 3. But regardless, the bulk of the letter is what we want to see here. I also want to draw your attention to the title of the sermon, seen on the front of your bulletin, A Faithful and Fitting Response. It's important that we frame this right. Frame it the way I think the scriptures frame it. The response this author is calling for is very much like the response Paul calls for in his letters. He calls for a faithful response. We do it not with the ultimate aim of curing favor with God, although we recognize that to live a life of faith pleases God. But We do it because it's right to do. We do it because it is the fitting response. It's often been mentioned that that's the way the Puritans used to like to talk about it. They would say fit or fitting We want to be careful not to say it's what I owe God. Now, I know what we would mean if we say that. We mean it's right that we do it, but that's why fitting is better. They were concerned we might get the idea that we could pay God back for what he's done for us. That I owe it. It's a debt I'm paying off by my life. Never think of it that way. Think about this simply as the right way for a believer to live in light of what Christ has done for him. And so if we think of it that way, I think we'll be closer to what this author and what the the scriptures call us to do. So how do we live a faithful and fitting response? Well, the first thing our author wants us to do is to think about what's been done for us. Now, I mentioned that the summary is largely over, but he does kind of summarize a little bit here. We have to recognize that, but it's important because he says there's some things that we have received. Well, what are those things? Well, they're blessings. They're blessings, First, we recognize that he says that there's a boldness that we've been given. You see it right at the beginning. Therefore, brethren, having, having boldness to enter, we have a boldness to enter. Now, this word in the Greek means something like an authority to enter. And this word is tied to what was commonly thought of as a Greek citizen's right to speak in the assembly. We have a presence there. Not purchased by us. It's not a birthright in one sense. You might say it's a new birthright. <laughs> a birthright in Christ. But it's something that He has gotten for His people, a standing. We go back to what Paul says in Romans 5. He also says we've received a standing in which we stand. I think it's the same thing being spoken of here. We have this boldness, this standing. We can boldly approach the throne of grace. We don't have to hold back. We don't have to think or consider that our our Father hates us. No. No. There's a wonderful article in our current Free Grace Broadcaster on Communion with God written by John Owen, and it's about communion with the Father. And he makes the, the point that many Christians err in thinking of Jesus as this wonderful, loving person, and the Father as this hateful, wrathful person. That is not accurate. Christ came on the mission His Father gave Him to redeem a people that He loves. This is the message of Scripture. And this is what He's saying— We now have peace with God. We have a standing before God that is gracious. We are invited to come boldly. Invited to come boldly. Never think of the Father and Son at odds against each other. It's not the message of Scripture. And so we see here, we have this boldness to enter the holiest. Now, we've been working at length to see exactly what our author means by this holiest place. He means Into the very gates of heaven itself, the sanctuary of heaven. We are beckoned in in Christ Jesus into the very presence of God. We don't literally, physically stand there. We stand there in Christ. But he has prepared the way, and he stands there ministering on our behalf as our representative. And we are beckoned to approach him with our needs and concerns. Come boldly to the throne of grace, he says. But recognize how you come. It's not your merit. It's not anything you've done. What does our author say? We come by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Author already explained that, didn't he? We could go back through it again, but it's the blood of Christ that has made atonement, and it's the blood of Christ that has cleansed the way that we might come before Him or come in Him into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is how it's happened. That He has cleansed the way for us. Now, many scholars have a fit with verse 20. And it's clear why. They say it's confusing the way it's written. By a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Now, before we break this down, I want to say I think it's easier to understand if you just recognize He's just restating what He said in 19. It's the same thing. He's saying, how is it we come? Well, we come not in the old way, we come in a new way. The entire argument of Hebrews has been that very dynamic. There was the old, but the old pointed to its fulfillment in the new. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. The new sacrifice replaces all those old sacrifices. The new priesthood replaces the old priesthood. This is the idea here. There is a new way in which this has happened. It's the very thing this author has been telling you about. And he says this, it's a living way. Now that's interesting. What does he mean? Well, it required a sacrifice that involved death. That's what we've been talking about for a long time. And that would remind us of that Old Testament priesthood system and sacrifice. But he says there's something different about this, isn't there? Because Christ made that sacrifice and atonement once and for all, never to be repeated. There isn't an endless parade of sacrifices, an endless parade of blood. It's been atoned for once and for all in Christ, in His own body. That's what's being said. And because of that, now He enters the heavenly sanctuary, not over and over and over again with blood, blood, blood. He enters now in a priesthood that has indestructible and eternal life. Arthur's already made that argument. There's something different about Christ's priesthood It is a priesthood of life. Now this is maybe playing on the dynamic that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians where he contrasts the Old Testament priesthood and system with the new. And Paul says there, it was a ministry of death, the Old Testament system. It's exact words. Look at chapters 2, 3, and 4 and you'll see him make this argument. It was an external and outward system of death. But he said the new one is A ministry of life. So we need to to think about this. I think it's the same argument this author is making. And using these two things together, we begin to see what he's saying is, this new and living way was done by Christ. Now, where many people have trouble is what he says at the end. Through the veil, that is, or even his flesh. And this seems to be a little bit of a different metaphor, a different picture being used elsewhere It says that he went through the veil, the curtains, which were the heavens. In other words, the Old Testament priesthood went through a physical curtain that separated the holy place from the holiest place, right? They would have to go through that curtain. We've spoken about this and enter into the holiest place or the holy of holies. And that curtain separated those two. And it said Jesus didn't do that. He went through the curtain of the heavens into the sanctuary that is the heavenly sanctuary and now the author changes that picture and says wait a minute the veil is actually his flesh and they're trying to wrestle with how to understand this i don't think you overthink it here i think you just understand that they're using the idea of the veil in two different ways when you think about that veil or that curtain that veiled off the holiest place you can think of it from two aspects one thing it did was it separated us from God's presence, right? We could not approach, we could not enter. Even the high priest could only do it once a year at God's command and only after doing the very things God had called him to do. So there's one sense in which it separates. But there's another sense in which we say it's through the curtain itself that we enter into the presence of God. I think that is what the author of Hebrews is thinking of here. How do we enter into the presence of God? It's through Jesus. And not through some great teaching ministry, although he was obviously a great teacher, the greatest who ever lived, being God in flesh. But we enter in through what he did in his body, in this incarnational mission. He didn't come in flesh for no purpose, he came to be this atonement, to be this sacrifice. That was his purpose. And he says it's through that that we have this access. It's through his flesh, as it were, that we can come into the presence of God. It's through what he accomplished in his flesh. Now, if you think about that for a moment, he's telling us here that we are able to enter boldly into the presence of God by what? The body and blood of Christ. That might be some pretty important imagery to remember as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Because even now we're reminded that we have communion with God, the very thing being spoken about here, coming into the presence of God by the body and blood of Christ. The body and blood of Christ. Now as we think about this for just a moment, we would need to realize there are other things that are being told here besides boldness. We would also want to recognize that as we go through this, he says we have a high priest. Now again, we looked at that for months and months and months. How exactly Arthur author could say that he is the perfect high priest, that Aaron and all the Levitical priesthood pointed to him, and he is the true high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We have such a high priest. In other words, we have the sacrifice and we have the high priest. We have everything we need, everything that we need to be set right before God. Again, not in our own work, not in our own striving, not in our own holiness, in the work, striving, and holiness of Christ in which we get to stand by God's grace and by faith. And so, my friends, these are the things that this author is telling us that we have. Now, realize those are still theological points, aren't they? We're still not really yet to application, but he says, let's start talking about application. So we come to it in our second point, our fitting response again it's important for us to recognize that there is a a fit response being called for there is a proper way in which such a people should live recognizing what God has done for us not that we can pay God back not that we can somehow show we're worthy of what he's done for us absolutely not we have to reject that kind of thinking but that there is a way in recognizing all that Christ did for us that we can say I want to live my life to his glory not to pay Him back, which I cannot do, but to honor Him, to love Him, right? to, to care about His glory. There's a fit way to live. And so if we understand all this theology that we've been looking at, it should drive us to live differently than the world that doesn't understand this theology or doesn't care about it or rejects it. We ought to live in a different way. And so as we come to that, we recognize that there is a way to live by faith that is fitting. I think it's what Paul calls our reasonable service. Our reasonable service. If God has done this for you, isn't it reasonable that you should desire to live for Him? Isn't it reasonable? Isn't it just serving Him. It's not paying Him anything. It's serving Him, recognizing His glory and His grace and desiring in in a reasonable way to serve Him. Well, how do we do that? Well, look at verse 22 because there's a first imperative given to us here. He says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Now, it's interesting to think for a moment that we're immediately based on all that's been said so far this morning, he says you, you have the position that you may approach boldly, so do it. Let us draw near. Let us do it. In other words, if you understand that you've been given the right to do so, why would you not do so? Why would you not draw near to God? Now we're going to see in just a second that he has more to say about how we're to do that. But again, this is a matter of faith. What would keep you from dying near the Father? You'd say, oh, my sins are great and they're many. They were many and they were great. And there's a sense in which we continue to sin as human beings. But if we've understood rightly what Hebrews is saying, in Christ we stand righteous. We stand not in accounting of all of our sins. In Christ Jesus we stand reconciled to the Father. That's not a here here one moment, gone the next moment thing. It cannot be lost. It is earned by the blood of Christ. We stand right with God in Christ Jesus. That's that whole new standing in which we stand. New standing in which we stand. And so what Paul says is, don't let you think your sin is in the way. That would be thinking like the Old Testament system of, well, now wait a minute. We'll have to wait for the next Yom Kippur and the next Yom Kippur and the next Yom Kippur. No, the sacrifice has been made for the people of God. It's been made it's been made. So if you think about it, he's saying, don't think that your sins of the past are great and many, and therefore you have no ability to approach. He's saying, because it's been paid for by the blood of Christ, you have the right to approach. Well, then you just simply have to ask yourself, do I believe what scripture is telling me? That God is my loving father, that Christ died for me, that the Holy Spirit has shed the love of God abroad in my heart and has Uh, is working to draw me uh, not only communally to the people of God, but to our Father. Is that true? If it is true, then Arthur says, live like it's true. Live like it's true. Draw near. Why would you not draw near to God? The Christian life is supposed to be a, a life of drawing near to God. And that's what he's saying. Draw near to God and do it how? With a true heart. We don't want any deceit in our hearts here before God. So You might think about uh, Jesus said uh, that this is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile or deceit. We shouldn't have guile or deceit either. But We should recognize that if we have a true heart and we have full assurance, what does that mean? I think it means the assurance that we're given by the promises of Scripture. These are the promises of God. If we believe the promises of God... If we have hearts of faith, then draw near to God. By the way, if you want to argue again that first point about sin, look at how he finishes verse 22. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are washed by the blood of Christ, by the sacrifice that He made, the idea that we aren't, that there's something else that's needed constantly He's saying "Is that pattern of thinking from the Old Testament. The sacrifice was made once and for all. you redeemed by Christ. Does that mean that you don't have reason to ever repent? Of course not. If you sin, go before the Lord in repentance. Be mortifying sin in the flesh. These are things that are fitting to do. We've been saying this over and over again. But recognize, my friends, that we have a standing in Christ. God does not look upon us and say, well... Rick doesn't make the cut. He wasn't quite good enough. My friends, if that's the standard, none of us will make it because none of us are good enough. That's what the Bible tells us over and over again. Only Christ is righteous. Our righteousness is not in us, but in Him. And that is the message here. So if we realize that, he says, then what? Let us draw near to God. But That isn't all we're called to do. Not just draw near to God. But look at verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. It's important to recognize we have a confession. In Sunday school this morning, we were talking about um, Paul talking in Corinthians about, about doing things with spirit and mind. We're to be thoughtful. Even when we sing these songs, we shouldn't just be going through the words as if they don't mean anything. We should be thinking about what we're singing, we're actually confessing something, aren't we? Maybe we don't consider it, but we are actually confessing something when we sing. We're confessing all the time what it is we truly believe. And we recognize this because we've worked around people that had a confession or a profession, and they didn't live it out, right? They didn't live it out, and we'd say, oh, it's just what they say. It's just what they say. But I think this author says, you've confessed something, don't waver. Don't give it up. Stand fast upon it. Hold fast to it. Hold fast to it. One of the things that's interesting is that word on holding fast there, katecho, uh, it's the word we get catechism from. It's the root word for catechism. Isn't it interesting that when we think about what a catechism is, it's teaching children where they should stand. might even say it teaches us adults we do a catechism. What do we look at today? How do we worthily partake of the Lord's Supper? That's something we want to teach our children, but it's something I need to be reminded of. It's something you need to be reminded of. There's a confession in these things. There's something we actually believe that we profess, whether we recognize it or not. And our author, I think, would say, you should recognize what you're professing. You should know why you profess it, and then you should hold fast to it. Don't be blown to and fro by every little thing that changes, you go, I never thought about that. Well, you should have thought about it. <laughs> you know, you should know what you believe and hold fast to it. Now, why does he say this here? Because we have some people in this situation that are thinking about not holding fast. Some people are saying, I profess that I believe Jesus. I profess that he is the true high priest, that he is the true sacrifice, that He is the only begotten son of God. I profess all those things, but it's not comfortable anymore. So I'm going to just walk away from that. I can go back to the synagogue. God was blessing that in ages past. He's still at work there. I can go there and be comfortable and just publicly disassociate myself from Christ and all is good. And the entire argument of Hebrews is, no, you cannot do that. We've been talking about this for a few years now. You cannot do that. You cannot say, I'll just set Jesus aside because it would mean you're not returning to anything at all. Because the Old Testament testified over and over to Him. There's nothing to go back to because all of that pointed to Him. And therefore, He says, you must hold fast what you confess. Well, how do you hold it fast? It's a confession of hope. You've got to hold it without wavering. You can't be blown to and fro. You can't compromise on this. There are some things you can't compromise on in life. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God through whom we have reconciliation to the Father and there is no other way. Is that us being hard and too narrow? And No, it's the truth. If that's the case, then the truth is hard and narrow, but it's the truth. And our authors explained why it is. There is no other way because no one else could do what only Christ can do and has done. There is no other way. In fact, I think when you think about the argument that Paul gives elsewhere, if there was a way that didn't cost the very blood of the Son of God, that would have been the way used. But it required this, this way. So you can't waver in it. Christians, we can't waver on some things. There are places we must stand firm and stand fast, and we must hold fast. And he says it here, Praise the Lord! We're not given it without hope. He said, "We will. We must stand in this confession of hope without wavering, for He who promised these things is faithful. We never have to wonder for a minute if God's going to keep His end of the deal. It's not even a deal, really. Will God keep His word? Of course. It's impossible for God to lie. God will do all things He has promised. They will happen in His time, but He will do them. So hold on." if it costs you something, it costs you something. If you're persecuted for it, then you're persecuted for it. Hold fast still. Hold fast still. There's one other imperative we're given, another let us, if you will. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This Greek word at the heart of this, let us consider one another, let us focus on one another, let us Make our aim one another. Again, I hate to keep referring back to Sunday school, but we're going through 1 Corinthians. What is Paul's argument there? You've been divisive and selfish and all these things. How about you put the body first? Don't worry about your individual gifts. Worry about how God is bringing them all together for the edification of the body of believers. When you come together for the Lord's table, don't divide up and one has too much and another has too little. Come together and share and recognize You don't come to this table individually. You come as part of a body. All of that is what Paul's saying. So when it says here that we are to remember to consider one another, he's saying the same thing. Remember your brothers and sisters. You weren't saved off on your own somewhere, but you were saved as part of the body of Christ, which meets in a particular location. There are many particular local churches. This is one of them. And if you're a part of this church and you're a part of this family and this body and you are to consider one another, well, consider one another how? To stir up love and good works. Think about that. Not just does it stir up good works and love in me to consider you all and I think, you know, I'd like to do this or I'd like to do that or maybe I could help one of you or, or do something that would bless one of you or maybe there's another way I can serve that would be good for this church. Those are the things its author is talking about. Stir up works in ourselves and love in ourselves, but also in one another. Also in one another. That by me serving you, it might also inspire you or make you think about I ought to be serving. Maybe there's a way in which we all encourage each other to serve the church for the edification of everyone, right? That's what Paul says. The gifts of God are given to each for the benefit of all. That's the mindset we're supposed to have in the church. Not selfishness, not building ourselves up, building up the body of Christ, the body of Christ. So he says what? Serve one another, consider one another, love one another, stir up good works and love amongst the the fellowship of believers. And then he says something that we hear uh, a verse a lot. We've heard it a lot the last couple of years or last three years. Understandably, in an age in which for the first time in many of our lives, churches were closed. We began to ask ourselves, how can we uh, live with verse 23 in an age in which we're making these kind of decisions? The author says what here? Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Now, let me say this really quick. Uh, I understand there's a principle here, and we were all thinking about it, right? Is, Is the author particularly talking about closing the church doors one Lord's Day? Maybe. Maybe. Certainly that's implicit here, that the meeting of the saints together for worship should be so primary in our way of life that we want to get together. It's not, oh, you need, you have to get together, you need to get together. It should be our heart's desire to get together for worship. That's, I think, implicit in this. But he's speaking to a more specific situation here of some people that are drawing back from the community. Maybe they've not fully broke yet and gone back to the synagogue, but they're pulling back. Maybe they're not coming as often as they used to. Maybe they're not coming at all recently. Certainly it's happening because he says what? He says, as is the manner of some. There are some in the congregation this author is addressing in which he's saying... They're not coming anymore. They've pulled away. They are not attending. They're forsaking the assembling of the body together. He says we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. Why? Because I think this tells us this is central to who we are as a people. The gathering of the saints for glory, for the glory of God, is, is at its heart what we do, who we are as a people. It's hard to know who we are outside of the community of the saints. For one thing, we've talked about this. Is it proper to partake of communion on your own at home? Man, oh man, we saw some really poor theology during COVID, didn't we? People saying, get out a Coke can and a bag of Doritos, we'll have communion. Well, what authorization is given to to you to have communion at home? Communion is, is given to the church, to the church which assembles and gathers And so, my friends, we need to think about this. There is a need for the church. The life of believers is in the church. So I think this author is saying one of the first things we begin to notice of people who are sliding away is they stop attending. They stop attending. And this author says, let's deal with that at the beginning. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't forsake the assembling of the people of God together. Now, why do I say that? He doesn't say that fully here. But if you go into verse 26, we're going to look at this over the next two weeks, 26 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll be done for this year with Hebrews. If you look at it, he's talking about walking away altogether. Walking away altogether begins with less and less attendance. It doesn't usually happen all in one fell swoop. It happens with, eh, I'm drawing back a little bit, drawing back a little bit, drawing back a little bit more. And this author is saying, don't do it. Don't do it. You need the community of the people of God. Not just because it's where we partake of communion. That's kind of important, though. As one of the two uh, sacraments given to the church, that's kind of important. But more than that, there's also fellowship that's lost. There's also encouragement that's lost. There's instruction that's lost. There's all these things. And how about just love? Just the love of the community is lost, and also the good works are lost. Paul's imagery of the body, and the Corinthian church is arguing over who has the most important part. Ears more important, eyes more important, hands more important, legs more important. But it's interesting because Paul often thinks about sporting events, often puts things in language of the Olympic Games, And I've used this illustration. You can get a guy to line up for a dash, a 100-yard dash, or whatever it would have been in those days, 100 meter. And if his leg falls off, he's not going to be very successful at running that race. We need these bodies working to work in full efficiency. And I think part of this is when you take yourself out of the body of the church, you are denying the gifts God has given you to your brothers and sisters. The body's not assembled. All the gifting isn't here. All the blessings with which God has intended to bless this body, some of them are absent because you're absent. And God has given some of those giftings to you, some of the ways that the whole body is blessed. And so I think when you think about this, the author is saying it is important things like attendance. It is important being assembled. It is important being a part of the church. And you'll see that very clearly today in the Lord's table. Where do we get this blessing? And by the way, we've had sermons, some of them are online, on we shouldn't think uh, the Lord's table the way we often do is simply memorialistic. It is in that sense we think back, it's a memorial to what Christ did. But we also recognize that there is a blessing. Paul speaks about this. Just as there is judgment and negative things that come from partaking in an unworthy manner, there are blessings from partaking in a worthy manner. And in fact, as you look upon this, it speaks of the faith, our catechism I'm speaking of, our faith to feed upon Him. If you think about last week, it says we partake of Christ through the Lord's Supper. Not bodily, not corporally, but, but spiritually. Spiritually, there is a blessing for the people of God as we come to this table. And so, my friends, as we do that, we recognize we do that as part of a, a church body. As part of a fellowship of people who come to have communion with the Lord, yes, but with one another also. We come as a body. And our author says, that's important. Don't overlook that. Don't reject that, certainly. But my friends, treasure it. It's one of the greatest blessings the Lord has given us. Amen.